Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Seven Wonders of the ancient world. I mean, we've already kind of done this a little bit. <laughs> Long-time listeners will remember um, episode 77, where we covered one of the seven, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Uh, and here I am a mere eight months later uh, with the rest of them. Look, I don't muck around. I don't muck around. I really don't. When something needs to be done, bam, I'm on it. Just get it done. You know, just get it done. Don't waste time. I've got people to see, places to go. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, look, we will be getting through the other six a little bit quicker than, uh, than the, the, you know, the, the gap between the first one and this one may have, uh, made you, uh, made you think there, uh, it's not going to be one, you know, one wonder every eight months we'd be here for another bloody three or four years. Anyway, today and uh, next week for that matter, we're going to get across all seven of the ancient wonders. So that is, of course, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus that we've already talked about, the Temple of Artemis, which we were, which we touched upon in that episode too, the Statue of Zeus, and uh, somewhat more controversially, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as well. And we'll do it in chronological order from date of construction. So today it's the Pyramid, the Gardens, and the Temple of Artemis. And next week we'll we'll you know brush up on the mausoleum before doing the statue of Zeus, uh, the Colossus, and the lighthouse. Now, you might wonder where in the first place this list of seven wonders comes from. Like, what's the origin story of the list in and of itself? Well, it's a good question, and the short answer is that there isn't actually really one single historically definitive list. Right? Like today, obviously we've got the list and it's pretty well established. But back in the day. Uh, the, the the list of wonders was you know many different people from many different periods of classical antiquity they wrote their own list they wrote you know wrote about various wonders in varying numbers it wasn't always seven um, and and most of the old lists uh, that were made they don't actually resemble the list that we've, that we've ended up with today they had uh, you know some in common and some not there were all sorts of different ones and all sorts of different lists but writers and historians such as um, Diodorus Siculus, uh, Antipater of Sidon, Philo of Byzantium and even old mate bloody Herodotus right they all wrote descriptions of different wonders again with only a partial overlap between them so our list that we have today is probably the best way to describe it is probably saying it's an, actually an aggregate it's an aggregate list the wonders that turned up on most of these uh, these historical lists more often than not as for uh, when and where these things actually existed, I mean, that's another important point to cover because the list that we've ended up with, you know, this list that we use in the modern day, has a very heavy Hellenistic bias. Um, uh, these, these wonders principally existed in the ancient Greek world. Five of the seven were, were built by Greeks. And so other parts of the ancient world don't really get a look in. So really, it's not the seven wonders of the ancient world so much as it is the five wonders of the ancient Greek world, plus one from ages before that, plus another one that probably didn't exist in the first place. I mean, already, already you're starting to see the, the twists and the turns. What's this you're saying? One of them didn't exist? Oh, yeah. Look, there is a lot going on with these wonders, a lot going on. Buck, buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride for sure. These ancient wonders, they're pretty bloody interesting. And as I said before, they are sometimes very controversial. Um, only one of the wonders uh, still exists today. And uh, as I say, one of them may never have existed at all. So how, how's that for a hook? Huh? That's not bad. That's, not, that's pretty good podcasting, I reckon. Those are pretty good hooks. I mean, you know, you've made it this far, so you're probably going to keep listening to the rest of the episode. So maybe I shouldn't rely on what will prove to be some pretty dodgy hooks there anyway. But I think that's, that's mate, a nice little bit of foreshadowing from me there. Anyway, 
We'll talk about everything to do with these wonders, how huge they were, how they were made, given the technology of the time, what they represented to the people back then, how we know what we know about them, and of course, you know, their ultimate fate. So let's get to it. Let's get to it, begin our journey through time here as we discover the stories of all seven of the world's ancient wonders. Let's begin. Um, and in doing so, we're going all the way back, all the way back here to the, <laughs> we're going back to the 2560s, uh, that's BCE, obviously, before the common era. I mean, rather, obviously, it would be a bit of a bloody twist for a history podcast to go forward by half a millennia, wouldn't it? Half a millennium, that'd certainly be a turn off the books. Um, anyway, four and a half thousand years ago, uh, 2560 BCE, we're back in the fourth dynasty of ancient Egypt. Now, this is often referred to as a bit of a golden age for the ancient Egyptians, very peaceful, very, very prosperous, a lot of trade going on, people having a great time, no worries at all. And what do you do when you're having such a, a peaceful, prosperous and great time? Apparently, you just start building great big bloody stone pyramids to use as tombs. I mean, actually... Egyptians had been building periods for a while before this, around 100 years, in fact. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, actually, how we compress ancient Egypt into a single historical entity, like we would do, you know, a sort of similar thing we would do with, like, say, the 60s or something like that, you know. When the people who built the Great Pyramid, as we'll talk about, they were doing something that had been going on in their civilization, their society, for a hundred years already. You know, it's not like the blokes back in the 60s putting on skinny ties and the women getting bloody beehive hairdos were going, ah, yes, just like those spoken of old, the many generations of my ancestors before me. Good. It, the, I mean, we, we, we sort of, again, compress ancient Egyptian history into one bite-sized chunk of history when it actually spanned, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. Anyway, pyramids. The oldest uh, Egyptian pyramid is the Pyramid of Djosa, which was built around 2670. Um, and all told, well over 100 pyramids were built. We don't know the exact number, 118, 138. There's a couple of different numbers flying around. Uh, but as you probably know, these pyramids, they acted as tombs or monuments for their monarchs, most commonly known as pharaohs, uh, the monarchs, that is, not the pyramids. Um, although, if you want a really brilliant, absolutely brilliant, well, actually, fact here, the term pharaoh wasn't used by Egyptians themselves until around 1200 BCE, over a millennium after the pyramids were actually built. So, once again, it's wild that we tend to compress a civilization that spanned over 3,000 years of history into the same space as, like, I don't know, the 40-something year Cold War. You know, I don't think anyone would fault you for saying, oh, the pharaohs who built the pyramids, but the, they weren't called pharaohs at that point. So anyway, um, I guess we can put it in perspective like this, right? When you think about someone like Cleopatra, or more correctly, sorry, Cleopatra the Seventh Philippata, right? Cleopatra, I reckon there's a chance that you sort of file her, and I'm not faulting you for doing this, this is just what happens. I reckon there's a good chance that you file her under the same historical category as the pyramids, right? Ancient Egypt, yep, hieroglyphs, crocodiles on the Nile, all all, all that good stuff. That's all, you know, that's, that's ancient Egypt. Cleopatra, pyramids, same. They're all in the same kind of bucket. Well, Cleopatra's reign is actually closer to the construction of the first blockbuster video than it is to the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza. The point here is that ancient Egypt spans a vast stretch of history, so vast, in fact, that someone like Cleopatra thought about the people who built the pyramids in the same way that we think about her today, someone from millennia ago, someone who was part of ancient history. Anyway, Let's get back to the pyramids. Let's get back to the, I'm trying very hard to talk about the pyramids here, apparently. Anyway, we'll get back to the Fourth Dynasty, back to the pyramids. All six of the rulers from the Fourth Dynasty, right? So again, this is this is way this is back in the in the in the the 26th century uh, BCE, four and a half thousand years ago. 
Um, uh, all the all six of the rulers from the fourth dynasty, which, which spanned a century in and of itself, uh, all of them they had a pyramid built to use as a tomb. And three of these pyramids, wouldn't you know it, they are the ones that you probably think of when you imagine the pyramids today. The ones at Giza, just outside of Cairo. Uh, there's the Pyramid of Menkara. There's the Pyramid of Khafre. Uh, but the one that we're interested in, of course, is the Pyramid of Khufu, the Great Pyramid itself. Now, there's a reason that the Fourth Dynasty is seen as a golden age of the Egyptian Old Kingdom. They had the time and the resources to build the most incredible and magnificently vast structures the world at this point had ever seen. Um, and despite all of the, you know, the effort I put into the excellent hook at the beginning of the, the beginning of the podcast here, we're actually already here. You know, I said that one of the wonders, one, one of the ancient wonders still survives to this day. You'll never guess which one it is. Surprise. It's the Great Pyramid at, at Giza. It's the, it's the only one that's still around, still with us uh, today in the 21st century. And I mean, this thing, look, it is a marvel of construction. It's a marvel of engineering. Uh, it's got an area of over 52,000 square meters. It's built with over 2 million stone blocks. Uh, which weigh thousands and thousands of kilograms. All, all the blocks individually, that is, they weigh thousands of kilograms each. So the entire thing is just massive. These blocks, they were transported ridiculously long distances, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. They're either, and they're either dragged, rolled, or perhaps even lifted into place. All the bloody nerdy Egyptologists are still arguing about exactly how the pyramids were built. Um, it's also an issue of some contentions to whether slave labour was used to build the pyramids. Uh, historians remain divided, uh, but more recent evidence uh, suggests that uh, it was actually tens of th- tens of thousands of skilled workers that were used instead. However, you you know, what, however, however, the the pyramid was built, it was a massive undertaking, a truly enormous uh, undertaking here, regardless, um, and took well over a decade to complete. The usual estimate is around fifteen years; could have been as long as twenty. Uh, but again, you know, no means by no means definitive those estimates there. And once it was finished, a truly massive structure was the result, unlike anything, as I say, unlike anything the world had ever seen. It was 146.6 metres tall, and it had side lengths of 230 metres, which were all within 58 millimetres of each other in terms of their respective lengths. Now, this might not sound like much, you know, but given that, again, this pyramid was built over four and a half thousand years ago, that level of precision and accuracy is pretty bloody impressive. To be able to build a, you know, build this enormous structure, 230 metre uh, long sides and be have, have them all be within 58 millimetres of each other, that's, that. I mean, that is that is a marvel of engineering for, for technology that is, you know, obviously nowhere near the sort of, uh, the sort of precision sort of accuracy that we have today. So very, very impressive. Anyway, at its original height of 146.6 metres, the Great Pyramid, of course, was the tallest human-made structure in the world, and it remained so for almost 4,000 years. This was the tallest thing on Earth made by humans for nearly 4,000 years. It was uh, it was finally eclipsed in uh, 1311 CE, well over 3,800 years later, uh, with the construction of the Lincoln Cathedral in England, which was 160 metres tall. Although some historians dispute this, um, and as a storm actually destroyed the spire in 1549, we may never know, uh, you know what was going on with Lincoln, Lincoln Cathedral there. But anyway... Fact of the matter is, the the Great Pyramid was the the tallest human-made thing for a very, very long time. Nearly 4,000 years, long enough to have seen empires and civilizations rise and crumble. It it has seen the 
the the majority of recorded human history the great pyramid and it was the biggest thing to do so uh for for, for much of its history again until just a, a very a, a brief uh, 700 years ago so it really really is incredible anyway many of you will uh, will have uh, you know picked up on the fact that before i said its original height of 146.6 meters has the great pyramid you may be asking has it shrunk in its old age and the answer that is kind of sort of yes it has if you look at a picture of the pyramid today, uh, you'll see all the you know you see all the blocks from which it's made. You'll see it looks a bit like a kind of like a ruined staircase. It's a, you know it's sort of it's not smooth or, or polished on the outside, but it didn't look like this when it was finished. It actually used to be encased in polished white limestone, giving it this brilliant smooth finish that, that shone in the sun. So it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't made of these sort of bare stones with with a step like appearance. It actually was was you know very smooth on the star on the side. But these casing stones they have not stood the test of time, even if the uh, the, the other stones that it was uh, made of have. The, the casing stones, they were shook loose. They were damaged uh, by an earthquake in 1303 CE. So very recently, when you, when you, you know, again, when you consider the, the broad history, the scope of the history of these pyramids, this happened very recently in 1303. Um, uh, the earthquake shook much of the casing loose and uh, most of it was dragged away and repurposed uh, to build mosques and fortresses and other buildings in Cairo. Although some casing stones, they still lie near the pyramid itself even today. But with the loss of the casing, the Great Pyramid, it's now today, it's 138.8 metres tall. Still pretty bloody tall, um, but we have to rely on our imagination to think of, uh, you know, how incredible it must have looked back then. Blinding in the sun, polished limestone, flashing brilliantly, rather than the, uh, you know, the, the, the how it looks today, which in fantasy is less impressive. Give it, having said that, it's, you know... Four thousand years old. We'll we'll give four and a half thousand years old. We'll 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 let it less look less good than it did all that time ago. But why was it built in the first place? You might be asking. Well, as I mentioned before, as I'm sure you know already, it was a tomb. It was a tomb for old mate Khufu, a great big monument to his life and reign. Uh, and as I mentioned, this was the done thing. If you were the king, uh, you built yourself a pyramid. Khufu, he topped every single other king before and after him with this enormous tomb. Of course, nothing nothing of its like was uh, was seen before or since. Um, and it's thought that he was ultimately buried there, although his remains have never been found. Uh, they were probably nicked ages ago, unless they're hiding in some as yet undiscovered part of the pyramid. Inside the pyramid, there are a couple of chambers and hallways that lead to what's known as the King's Chamber, uh, where today there's a busted up sarcophagus and a lot of graffiti on the walls as well, I might add. You can actually go online, go and have a look online, uh, go online and have a look at the picture of it. It's incredible. It's incredible that one of the constants throughout human history is a desire to write your name on the bloody wall. Uh, because, I mean, robbers, two Tomb robbers have, have had their way with the, with the Great Pyramid several times throughout history. More or less all of the pyramids were actually plundered and looted by the time of the New Kingdom, you know, just, I mean, just a thousand, just, just a thousand years later after their construction. Um, and, uh, you know, since then, obviously, various people have been, all, all throughout history, people have been interested in getting inside the pyramids, you know, come hell or high water and see what's going on in there. But it's thought that, broadly speaking, they were, they were looted and pillaged within a thousand years of them being built. So it's not anything, it's not something that happened particularly recently. Uh, but of course, you know, very much a, a very a very famous tourist attraction, both both then and now. And uh, our good mate Herodotus, I talked to, uh, I mentioned him before, the, the bloke on the cover art for this dumb podcast there in his sunglasses, um, he visited 
invented the pyramid himself. Uh, in the, you'd hope he had his bloody sunglasses back then. You know, of course, in Egypt, the bloody hot hot son of Egypt. You hope you have your sunglasses then. Uh, he visited the pyramid himself in the fifth century BCE, uh, two thousand years after its construction. Again, we tend to lump all these, but no, it was it, it was two thousand years old when an ancient uh, the bloke who basically invented history visited the pyramid. It was already two thousand years old. Um, and he was told its history. He was told stories of how it had been plundered and broken into. And today, you too can visit the Great Pyramid. You can go inside to see the same sights and hear the same stories that Herodotus and countless other tourists from across across the, the vast millennia have enjoyed. It is funny, really, how a great big stack of stones uh, connects us to, to four and a half thousand years of history like this. But the Great Pyramid of Giza, it still stands today as an immovable bookmark between the pages of human history as the one surviving wonder of the ancient world. And hopefully, hopefully you'd think it will be around for a good while to come yet. We move on now to our second wonder, the the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh, which means we've actually got to take a pretty bloody significant leap forward in time from 2560 BCE, uh, the construction of the Great Pyramid, to 600 BCE uh, here, almost 2,000 years. And uh, I guess, uh, geez, I mean, remember the so remember at the top of the show, you know, I had those expertly deployed hooks uh, about how only one wonder still stands today, and I sort of blew that very early on the Great Pyramid and how one may not have even existed. I mean, yeah, I, I really stuffed it up with the hooks, as it turns out, because, I mean, yeah. This is the one that may never have existed. You're supposed, you're supposed to use hooks to tee stuff that comes right at the end of the show, aren't you? Jeez, I, I, bloody, I buggered this up. I blew both hooks on the first two. Guys, bloody hell. Anyway, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Let's, uh, they probably didn't exist, but let's treat them as though they were real for just a bit, and then we'll go through the supposed history and see how it holds up. The Hanging Gardens, uh, they were apparently, again, didn't exist, but if they did, um, uh, they were apparently a great big terrace, had several tiers all overflowing with plants and flowers. Details are understandably a bit hazy, uh, but most descriptions, they say that the gardens were square, kind of layered like a wedding cake, a big kind of citadel, with tiers uh, being smaller as you as you go up. And the gardens, they feature prominently in the works of a few ancient Greek writers, and uh, there are a few common threads that run throughout these descriptions. Here's what they all had to say, keeping in mind that, uh, you know, again, this is probably more myth than history. Uh, the gardens were obviously found in Babylon. I mean, that's right there in the name, in modern-day Iraq. Uh, and they were built around 600 BCE. Why were they built? Well, how's this for an origin story, right? King uh, Nebuchadnezzar II, who was a real bloke, this bloke, I mean, for what it's worth, we've got to, we'll separate the truth from the fiction. This bloke was a real bloke. He's in charge of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Very, very powerful bloke. You can find him in the Bible. Apparently, you know, destroyed the destroyed Solomon's temple. Um, you know, quite apart from this historical fiction in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, real bloke, actual factual real bloke, and he marries an actual factual real woman, we think she may also be mythical. We think she's real, but who knows? Named Amatus of Media, right? Or Media, maybe. Amatus of Media. It's spelt like Media. Maybe it's just Media. Uh, she's from. You'll never guess where she's from. She's from Media, right? Uh, up in the uh, up in the northwest of modern day Iran. And after the marriage and uh, the move to Babylon, poor old Amatus, right? She's not having the greatest time. Can I tell you this? She is pining. She's pining for the forest. She's pining for the mountains. She's pining for the green valleys of her homeland of Media. Now Nebuchadnezzar, can I tell you this also? Not a fan. Not a fan of the pining. He's, she's finding far too bloody much for his tastes. He says, you, 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 "There's too much pining. You got to stop." Gotta 
to stop or put to this pining. It's no good. Now, solutions, they are the business of old mate Nebuchadnezzar. And so he tackles the problem head on. He orders the construction of these magnificent gardens and he fills them with trees and plants and all sorts designed, right, to take Amethyst right back to her na- native media. media. Uh, all the trees and plants from her homeland, whack them in the garden. She can wander around having a great time. No more pining. Beautiful. Very romantic. Nice one, ne- Nebuchadnezzar. Making the obvious, honestly, making the rest of us look pretty bad. You know, we're here with a bloody bunch of flowers and some chockies. Bit of an overperformer there, Nebuchadnezzar. You are making the rest of us look bad. Anyway, apparently the end result: great big citadel-like terrace, layers of gardens, towering twenty or more meters in the air, uh, filled with incredible plant life. Sounds sounds bloody incredible, except it almost certainly didn't exist. There really just isn't that much way in the there there isn't much in the way of evidence for the hanging gardens of Babylon actually ever having been a real thing. Um one of the very first records of the gardens was written in 290 BCE, 300 years after its supposed construction. And uh, all those Greek writers I mentioned before, they all lived hundreds of years after that. So they're hardly definitively reliable sources, you know. Um, and on top of all of this, I mean, even, you know, to really put the nail in the coffin here, I mean, the, the coffin at this point more or less welded shut, but we might as well put some more na- nails into it. Um, there's no evidence of the gardens from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar himself either. And there's plenty of evidence of the other stuff that he did. So unless he deliberately kept the gardens very quiet, which seems a bit unlikely, seeing as they ended up being a wonder of the world, you know, they probably weren't a real thing. I mean, think of the tourism shekels or the bloody neo-shekels or whatever bloody money they used back in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He would have wanted people to come and see these gardens, surely. Um, In all seriousness, we have very specific records of the building projects undertaken during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, like weirdly specific, in fact. Uh, Like this one, for example, written on the gates, uh, one of the gates to the city, the Ishtar Gate. This is what he wrote. I laid the foundations of the gates down to the groundwater level and had them built out of pure blue stone. Upon the walls in the inner room of the gate are bulls and dragons, and thus I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. And that's just for a bloody city gate, mate. You'd think if this bloke had actually built the Hanging Guardians, he would be crowing about that even louder, wouldn't he? So... Quite a, you know, quite a, quite aside from the fact that the only records that we have of the gardens coming from hundreds of years later after they were supposedly built, and quite aside from the fact that you know there's no records from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar himself when it comes to these guardian gardens. There's also no archaeological evidence for them as well. The ancient city of Babylon has been excavated, it's been plundered by archaeologists over the years, and there's never been a scrap of evidence that the gardens were ever part of it. Now, there is a theory that maybe all the evidence was is hidden under the Euphrates River. Uh, the river used to flow along a different course back then and may now, maybe it flows over the actual site of the gardens, but that's a that's a little straw clutchy for my taste. You know, all the garden truthers out there being like, no, it exists, it's just at the bottom of the river, so we can't access it. It's like, all right, man, okay, sure, pull the other one's got bells on. So if they never actually existed, why then do they find their ways onto our list of seven wonders? Well, as I said before, it's because they were written about extensively by a fair few writers from classical antiquity, especially around the first century BCE. And again, that's 600 years after these gardens were supposedly built, so we maybe perhaps shouldn't take too much of this very seriously. It's possible that these writers were instead just writing about an idealised version of an eastern garden and speculating on the engineering techniques that would actually support something like that. In fact, much of this old writing is devoted to explaining explanations of how you could irrigate a garden like this with Archimedes screws drawing waters up from the you know the Euphrates up to the higher tiers of the gardens or whatever else and honestly this probably added to the mystique of the legends of the garden you know while not as sweet as 
hoverboards and flying cars and the stuff that you know we fantasize about today it it might have been cool to think about i don't know irrigation techniques back then i'm kind of losing the plot here bending over backwards to try to explain this whole thing the long and the short of it is that the gardens just very probably didn't exist but persisted throughout classical antiquity as a myth and then have slowly but surely sort of wormed their way into the consciousness of of, of, our, of humanity as as one of the seven wonders here i mean our mate herodotus right who who wrote a fair bit about babylon you know he he, he, he again basically invented history so he's he's written a fair bit about a fair bit um, and he wrote about Babylon. He never mentioned the gardens. He lived in the 5th century BCE, just over a century after they were supposedly built. You'd think that he would have heard of them. You'd think that he would have written about them, especially if he wrote about Babylon. He didn't. Again, I hope, I hope I've convincingly made the case that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon didn't exist. So you might think it's a bit ridiculous that we ended up kind of thinking that they did, given that they almost certainly didn't. But with such, with, with such vast amounts of time involved here, it's actually not totally unreasonable. Again, we tend to compress history the further we go back. Despite there being 600 years between the supposed constructions of the gardens and, and the bulk of the writing about them, today we just sort of more or less lump it all into the same clump of history, right? But they're not. They're not the same clump of history. Every, anything written down today about what happened 600 years ago is is bound to lack total and complete accuracy, even with the modern era's more robust approach to historical rigour. And so when you think about it, the 600 years that separates the supposed construction of the, of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and, and the writing about them later, I mean, it's 600 years, the same amount of time between us now and the 15th century. So it's not as though that 600 years was shorter than, you know, a, a later 600 years. It's still 600 years. And on top of this, there's, there's also something else I kind of want to bring up here, because there are plenty of other mythical places that are written about so extensively that you'd be forgiven for thinking that they actually once existed. For example, places like Camelot or El Dorado. You know, these are these are mythical places that you could be excused for thinking were real. I mean, a mate of mine, check, check this out, a mate of mine, right, a fully grown adult, he only recently found out that unicorns weren't actually a real animal at any point. He thought that they had been real and had just gone extinct. And that's not totally unreasonable given their place and how much they're written about and how sort of ubiquitous they are in in in, in so many pieces of, of media and literature or whatever else. So you, you can kind of see, you know, given how much stuff exists on topics like this, plus how much time has passed, you know, you can see how mythical things like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon end up being thought of as real. Anyway, with the probably made-up Hanging Gardens of Babylon behind us, it's time to jump forward to the next wonder on our, on our list here, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Now, the jump from the Great Pyramid to the Hanging Gardens, that was pretty huge. It was two millennia, but this time we're, we're, going, uh, we're, we're just going from 600 BC, the year that the Hanging Gardens were, uh, weren't built, uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to around 550, uh, the year that the Temple of Artemis was. Um, then again, I suppose every year was the one when the Hanging Gardens weren't built. So anyway, um, around the year 550 BCE, near the modern-day Turkish town of Selçuk, a fella named Croesus, right? He is the king of Lydia, uh, which is a kingdom that spanned much of Western Anatolia. Uh, it's about to fall, by the way, to the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 546. Remember, we're counting backwards here, seeing as we're before the Common Era. Uh, but in the meantime, Croesus, he's as rich as, well, 
Croesus. You may have you may have heard the saying. That's where the saying came from. This ancient king, um, and he uses some of this wealth uh, to sponsor, in part at least, uh, to sponsor the construction of a magnificent temple to honor Artemis, the uh, the Greek goddess of the hunt, uh, of the moon, and uh, of critical hits. A little little Hades joke in there for you. Hope you enjoyed that. If you if you're into roguelikes and Greek mythology, definitely give Hades a go. It's a bloody terrific game. It is anyway. Um, the spot chosen for the temple, right? Ephesus. It is an ancient, even by standards back then, it's an ancient place of worship, uh, a sacred site where older temples before our wonder of the world had been built. Uh, modern archaeology, in fact, has confirmed the existence of buildings that predate this new, new I was going to say new, this new temple. So if you want to get technical, then this wonder is actually the second temple built at Ephesus. Um, However, a great big flood, century or more beforehand, had uh, had wiped away the buildings there. So now in 550 BCE, there's nothing much there. Obviously, that's about to change, thanks to Croesus and perhaps some others. Uh, a new wonder of the world is about to be built. Bloody better do it quick too before uh, before someone else beats you to it, huh? Little little sieve joke there for you. Hope you enjoyed that. If you're into history and you've just got way too much time on your hands <laughs> give Civ, uh, give Civ six a go uh, just 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 one more turn um anyway a bloke right his name is Cursifron. he's an architect from crete he is hired to design and build the temple and so he and his son metagenes they get to work now obviously they're back with some serious cash here and they go all out on this building which ends up being absolutely spectacular it was 115 metres long. It was 46 metres wide. The columns that held up the roof were 13 metres high. And these columns, they were lavishly decorated, as indeed was most of the temple, with relief carvings. Um, and inside, there was a great big statue of either blackened grape, grape wood or even perhaps even ebony that represented Artemis. And notably, uh, the temple was built of marble. It was made of marble. And I mean, sure, you might think most of them were, right? Well, no, not actually at this point in history, no. In fact, the Temple of Artemis may very well have been the first ever Greek temple to be to have been made of marble. It maybe was the, uh, you know, the first to, to sort of blaze that trail. Anyway, you sliced over this temple, it was an incredible sight. It was richly decorated. It was magnificent to behold. And it quickly became a very important tourist attraction throughout the Greek world. Everyone from common sightseers to kings would come to the temple and they would make offerings to Artemis. And the temple was also a very important sanctuary uh, for, for, for anyone who was uh, fleeing persecution or, or punishment. They would come to the temple and they would seek refuge inside it, which was a tradition that dated back to myths about the Amazons uh, seeking Artemis's protection from Dionys- uh, Dionysus and, uh, and Heracles. So as a result of its popularity, you know, people coming from, from far and wide across the Greek world. We're not, we're not talking about the Greek world, of course. I mean, this it, it is in modern-day Turkey, but at this point in history, that was part of the Greek world. The, the, the Aegean, is it the Aegean or the Aegean? I think it's the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea, sort of that ring there. It had many, you know, it had Greek outposts and colonies and all sorts of stuff everywhere. So it was, it was Greek people that lived in this part of the world at this point in history. Um, and due to its popularity, you know, throughout the Greek world, the temple absolutely overflowing with riches. Uh, you know, the, the visitors that bring gifts, and uh, in fact, so so wealthy was the temple that archaeologists uncovered a massive trove of wealth where the temple used to be, including some of the earliest coins ever discovered. And you can, of course, hear all about uh, the earliest coins that we uh, that we know about by listening to last week's episode of the history of money. If you want to learn about you know the type of electron electrum coins that they found there. Um, unfortunately, however, the temple, it wasn't to last. After its construction and around, again, 550 BCE, it stood for about 200 years before it was destroyed. 
Now, those of you who listened to episode 77 about the, mausole- uh, the mausoleum, you will doubtless recall what happened. Now, this is a cracker of a story, so we're going to go over it here quickly. <clears throat> In 356 BCE, someone set fire to the wooden roof beams of the temple, which brought the whole thing down. It destroyed the temple. And apparently this happened on the very same day that Alexander the Great was born, on the 21st, on the 21st of July in uh, 356 BCE. Now, this may just be you know, a detail that someone tacked on to make the story a little, a little better. As Plutarch clipped, Artemis, uh, quipped, Artemis was too busy with the delivery of Alexander to stop her temple from being burnt down, which is definitely, you know, it's a good, it's a good bit of gear. That is, that is a good bit of gear. We'll, we'll give that one to Plutarch there. Anyway, it turns out that the reason that this bloke set fire to the temple is because he wanted to be famous. He wanted his name to echo throughout history, right? He was captured after after this crime. He was captured, he was tortured, and he admitted to burning down the temple just to secure his legacy. He simply sought fame at any cost, which is a type of fame that we refer to today, of course, as herostratic fame. Anyway, Seeing as his sole objective for this, you know, horrifically reckless act of vandalism was to etch his name into the history books, the Ephesians, they came up with a very fitting punishment for this bloke. They punished him by forbidding anyone, on pain of death, no less, to speak his name or to write it down. They wanted to erase this bloke from history. They wanted to make sure that no one, that he wouldn't get his wish, that no one would know his name. They wanted to deny him the herostratic fame that he craved so very much. Except he did get his herostratic fame after all, because this bloke's name was Herostratus, and herostratic fame is named after him. A historian named Theopompus wrote down his name, and so it has survived to this very day, granting Herostratus the historical legacy that he desired so much. And I just, I find this story so interesting. I find it so interesting that we don't know the names of the people who condemned Herostratus to obscurity, but we do know Herostratus's name and even named a type of fame after him on top of that. This bloke wanted to be famous and not only became famous, but had a type of fame given his name. He really got what he wanted, didn't he? I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go and I don't want to encourage anyone to start going and burning down place of worship just to secure your name in the history books. You know, we've been there and we've done that, right? But there was an upshot. There was a further upshot to what Herostratus did. And again, I don't want to say that he did us a favour by burning down the temple or anything because he was still, you know, a reckless vandal when all was said and done. But his destruction of the temple, it did lead to its reconstruction, right? And this thing was obviously already a wonder of the world at this point, right? But it was the reconstruction of the Temple of Artemis that truly cemented its place as an all-timer, as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that we still talk about and marvel at today. Um, the temple, the ruined temple, it remained it remained in ruins uh, for uh, about over 30 years until 323 BCE. Um, and in that time, Alexander the Great himself actually offered to pay for its uh, its reconstruction. Uh, but the Ephesians, they, they refused Alexander's money. Uh, they did it with a good line too. They did it with a good bit of gear. They said... Uh, it would be improper for one god to build a temple to another, which, again, a, a, a pretty good line. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of that one. I don't hate that. Um, but rebuild it, they did the Ephesians. They eventually, they eventually paid for it uh, themselves. And the final result was a temple that was larger and even grander 
than the first or second, I guess, depending on whom you ask. This new temple, right, it was 137 metres long. It was 69 metres wide and it was 18 metres high. It had over 120 columns and it was filled with relief carvings, with sculptures and paintings, richly decorated with gilded columns of gold and silver, an altar, and of course, a great big bloody statue of Artemis herself, can't forget that, resplendent in her new home. And once again, the temple became a very popular attraction for visitors, as it had been pre-Herostratus, and there they held festivals and feasts and all sorts over the centuries. Uh, And the temple in this form, it survived for much longer than its previous version until 262 CE, in fact. So over 500 years, the the second or third, I guess, the the final form, the final form of the temple of uh, the temple of Artemis there. But it was in 262 that along came the Goths. And again, as I think I mentioned before on the podcast, you know, we're talking about the, the shield and spear type here, not the eyeline and inconvenient shoe fastening type. Um, these Goths, uh, they were raiding, they were pillaging along the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. They they were laying waste to, to cities and towns and, and temples all over the place. And they also laid waste to the Temple of Artemis. And in, in, in doing so, they destroyed a wonder of the ancient world. I mean, you know, nice going, Goths. Really, really good stuff from you. What are you going to do next? Bloody raid and pillage your, your local hot topic? Unbelievable. Anyway, in fairness, too, to the Goths, they may not have uh, completely destroyed the temple. They may have actually only, in inverted commas, only badly damaged it, as it actually seems to have been used by people in the years afterwards, even if it wasn't, you know, as magnificent and resplendent as it had been before. However, as Christianity rose to prominence uh, throughout the 4th century CE, and uh, as the by now pagan worshippers of gods like Artemis were persecuted by the Christians, uh, the temple became once and for all a thing of the past. And by this point, even the stone that had been used to build the temple, it was also pillaged and taken away. Some of the columns in the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, uh, they were taken from the temple of Artemis. And, and you can go and see them. They're there to this very day. You can see them in modern day Turkey. But the temple itself, of course, is no more um, outside of a, of a collection of, you know, small a ruin of ruined foundations that were actually lost to history until 1869. Uh, when they were rediscovered by the greatest thieves consortium in the multiverse, of course, the British Museum. Um, And the British Museum in London, it houses today some of the uh, remains of the temple. Uh, While at its former location in Turkey, you will only find a single column made from uh, some of the rubble that was left behind. However, at its peak... The Temple of Artemis was, by all accounts, a truly wondrous sight to behold. Have a listen. Have a listen to this, right? Have a listen to what Antipater, one of the blokes at the beginning of the podcast who put together one of those lists I was talking about at the top of the episode there. Uh, This is what Antipater had to say about the temple when set against the other wonders that he wrote about. I have gazed upon the walls of impregnable Babylon, along which chariots may race, and on Zeus by the banks of the Alpheus, I have seen the Hanging Gardens, well, you haven't, we know that you haven't, mate, and the Colossus of the Helios, the great man-made mountains of the lofty pyramids, and the gigantic tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the sacred house of Artemis that towers to the clouds, the others were placed in the shade, for the sun himself has never looked upon its equal outside Olympus.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the uh, the story of the first of the the first three of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. And I'll be back next week with the story of three more. Um, in the meantime, want to go and have a listen to episode 77, the story of uh, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. It does have the longest and, and most interesting and most involved story out of all of them. And it was, you know, obviously took an entire episode to get across that. So you can tide yourself over to next week by refreshing yourself on that one. And then we'll be back to talk about... Uh, the, uh, the 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 statue of Zeus, the uh, the Colossus of Rhodes, and of course the other one, which I've already forgotten, the lighthouse. That's right, the light- <laughs> the lighthouse. My goodness. Anyway, hope you join me for that one. In the meantime, of course, closing out the show with the normal housekeeping stuff. Halfhouseissue.net. You already know about this. If you want to buy some merch, you can do that at Big Cartel. Uh, Big Cartel. Dot, uh, uh, sorry, halfhouseissue.bigcartel.com, or you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/halfhouseissue. Thank you. Got a lot of new new patrons uh, coming in, and I really appreciate all the people chucking me money for this dumb podcast. It still beggars belief that it happens. But hey, I'll take it. Thank you very much for your support. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, of course, the podcast is free to listen to. If you want to subscribe to it, you can do so on uh, iTunes or Android free of charge. And uh, uh, that's it, I think. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people you feel mildly ambivalent towards. And uh, that is that for another another week. So looking forward to your company as we close out the the Seven Wonders next week. Be sure to go and check out the uh, the, the episode on uh, the mausoleum and all the other ones as well. The, some of them are pretty well, some of them are stinkers but i mean some of them are pretty good you know go and listen to gail gelser or the tarah episodes pretty good the 1904 marathon is a is a classic that's a good one the what are the good ones are the k-class submarines i don't get a giggle out of that one anyway plenty of good stuff there if you want to go and listen to it and and, and of course you know some average episodes as well but they can't all be winners kid anyway we're done we're done we're done uh here is of course the question posed on reddit to close out the show this one coming to us from reddit historian advanced guidance four who asks what is the name of those ancient pyramid-shaped structures in Egypt?